you were the star of the show, buddy. <laughs> oh, goodness. Thank you, guys. Uh, kids, you're dismissed to go downstairs now. Man, that could have been the sermon this morning. But it wasn't. Stay where you are at. Oh. Kids, you can go downstairs. Adults, you got to stay here. Thanks for being here this morning. Especially if you're visiting with us, thanks for giving us a shot today. Um, thank you, band and worship team. Man, that was, that was great this morning. Appreciate Joe all over the strings up there. But um, Give you a chance today to, to take a deep breath. Um, if you're like me, it's been a crazy week, and uh, it, you can kind of come to church in that same mindset where your mind's all over the place and you completely lose track of what you're doing and why you're here. So it's a good opportunity um, for us just to take about 30 seconds, which is not that much time, but about 30 seconds for us just to kind of be quiet, as quiet as it can get in this room. The kids are gone, but that doesn't matter. Um, it's still loud in here. Um, but about 30 seconds of, um, uh, of just quiet, give a chance for you to say, hey, God, I want to give this moment to you. I want to quiet my life so that I can hear from you. Um, and uh, we're going to do that about 30 seconds. I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump right in today. Be quiet before God this morning. God, in the quiet of this room, we just pause. We pause the bills, the anxiety, the to-do lists. We stop all of them and get perspective on who we are and on who you are. God, would you give us a moment now of, of perspective on our life? And we'll give back to you. We'll act. We'll not just be religious people, but we'll change the, who we are because of your word today. Would you speak into our life and we'll listen and we'll act in your son's name. Amen. Well, those of you who know me know I live out in uh, the middle of the, the woods on the west side of Bloomington. Um, my, I bought the property from my dad that I grew up with. Um, I live in a log cabin on about 40 acres of land. And I moved, from there for, moved to there from town, and I really didn't grow up with the backwoods kind of a feel. And so the heavy equipment, the woods was something new to me. And when I moved there, I thought I, I would do what every homeowner that owns a lot of property should do. And I bought a chainsaw. Um, it's kind of a rite of passage, actually. Every man has this moment where they buy a chainsaw, and it's, it's a really important moment. And so I went to the small engine shop, and I bought a chainsaw, you know, and pretended that I knew what I was doing, and I just kind of picked one um, that was in my price range and went home. And I, I, the guy started it at the shop to show me how it worked and everything, and I pretended I understood it all, figured I didn't want to be embarrassed being the guy that didn't understand the chainsaw. So I got home, and, man, I could not get it running. I just couldn't get it running. And thinking back on it now, I mean, I tried everything to get this thing running. I went on YouTube, looked, at, did everything I could to keep from asking another man how to make a chainsaw work because it's just embarrassing. But finally, I realized there's something wrong with this chainsaw. So I went back, 
took it to, to the small engine shop and said, hey, could not get this chainsaw running. The guy looked at me like, I think he looked at my haircut and decided I really didn't know much about chainsaws, you know. And, and, but he said, this is how it works. So he, you know, he got it all ready, and, man, he couldn't start it. And, man, I felt so much better, you know. So he took it back, and he said, come back here to the shop, back to the shop with me. And he, he just takes this thing apart, and there are pieces all over his shop. And I'm thinking, I hope he gives me a new chainsaw because he's never going to get that thing back together, you know. But he finally got it back together. And he said, I, I know what the problem is. I should have checked it first. He said, there's one small problem, and if we don't have this, and if it's not right, nothing else works. Anybody know what that is? Gas, for sure. That's, that's how dumb I am. It could have been gas. The spark plug. He went out for $1.37. He grabbed another spark plug. He put it in. Ying, 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 started right up, and I took it home, and it's run great ever since. And I'm telling you that story this morning because I learned in that moment that nothing works, nothing runs in an engine without that one little cheap part that provides the spark, that provides the energy. And I'm saying that today because I've got a couple weeks left with you here, just today and next week, and I can't think of anything I would rather do than leave you with a spark. As a church, as a, as a believer in Jesus, um, if you're here and you're not sure you believe all this stuff, if you pay attention today, this will still add a spark um, to your life. Maybe the spark you've been missing. There are churches all over America right now, all over Bloomington even, that are meeting and they're just a, they're kind of Christian drones. You know, they're just sort of, they come in, they sing, they worship, they pretend they're okay. You know how, that, how Christians do this when they, you say, how are you doing today? And you go, I'm good. And you get this cheesy grin and you're really not. And we do that. Honestly, the only thing that separates a lot of Christians in Bloomington from the world is that we go to church on Sundays. And that's not ever the intent of Jesus. It was never the intent of the followers of Jesus originally. That there is something to be different in us. And there is a spark plug that is missing in a lot of Christian people. There is a thing in our life that if we don't add it, if we don't continue to address it in our life, it will cause us to lose the spark that God intends for us to have in our life. And I'm excited to talk to you about it today. It changed my life. Um, I, was, uh, I grew up in Bloomington, grew up in a church here um, that uh, really actually, um, I, I'm not sure they taught this, but I learned um, as a church, as a Christian, that my job was to show up at church on Sundays. And believe. Have you, ever, have you ever heard that? That that your job as a Christian is to show up and believe. And I remember as a high school student trying to believe. Um, and maybe you've felt this way in your life before where I've tried to believe in this thing. Um, Mark Twain said that, that um, faith is trying to believe in things that just ain't so. <laughs> and when I was in high school, I remember feeling like that. That, that the, the preacher would say that what God wants from you is to believe. And I would sit and I would go, mm, and I would try really hard. But the problem with belief is you, don't, you can't try. You can't try harder and believe. And that's not ever the intent of God. And James, um, the, the writer of the book that I'm going to start with today, um, he's speaking to a group of people who have lost their spark. A group of people who believed in Jesus for a while and who even believed when he wrote them. And, and when he began to, uh, when, when this group of people started and these churches started, what happened was they were being attacked by, by the government. And in order to believe in Jesus, it couldn't be like we do, where we're like, do we want to go to church Sunday? Yeah, let's go. Eh, maybe not. It's raining, you know. And that's kind of the way we decide where to go to church. If you were, at this point in history, if you wanted to go to church when the church started, you were making a decision that was life or death. You were, you were putting your life 
um, in peril to go to church, to, to worship God. And so you didn't have these people that kind of went to church and weren't real sure. They just kind of went to please their grandma or their wife or their husband. Um, you didn't really have that. You either, if you were a church person, you either really believed or you didn't because you could die for what you believed. And that's the way the church started. And it came with this way of living, um, the way the church started. It wasn't just about church. It was about what happened and the way you lived your life. In fact, they called themselves followers of the way. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were people who lived a different kind of life. But at some point, the Roman government stopped persecuting them as much. Um, it was still illegal to worship Jesus, but they kind of were letting it go. They had other priorities. And it became just a little more acceptable. And with that came this just this real um, complacent attitude among the Jesus people, the, follow, the first followers of Jesus. So James, who was actually the brother of Jesus, which is why he's my favorite author in the Bible, this was a, a guy who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God when he was on earth. Um, how hard would it, wouldn't it be hard for you to believe that your brother was the Son of God? You know, um, it was just really hard for James to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but he followed him anyway, and he would follow him around, and he would take notes, and he would remember what Jesus said, because there was something about Jesus that was great, even if you didn't believe he was the Son of God. People would follow him. So then Jesus died on the cross and he came back and James was like, okay, now I'm in. You know, if anybody can die and come back from the grave, I believe. And James then became the most spark plug person in the faith. He began to, to write letters to churches and say, you don't want to just do church like religion. You don't want to just do religion like the rest of the world does. There is something about following Jesus that's different. And if you don't do this, you're missing the spark that God wants to have for your life. So I want to do something today that I have, I don't do very often. I want to read an entire chapter of the Bible to you. Um, and part of the reason is because I want to give you some context for this book of James. James is writing to a group of Christians who have lost their spark. Um, I believe some of them are probably older. Some of them had some, some real Jewish tradition in them. Um, and some of them had just lost their spark for, um, for following Jesus. And they were just going through the motions. So I'm going to read to you from um, James chapter 2. He's speaking right to this group of people. And if you can kind of get into your head what it would feel like to just be a religious person at this time and, and lose your spark. Maybe it's not too hard for some of us. He says in chapter 2, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. It's a funny way to start. He says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges, judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is a big statement. To us, we like the thought of not being judgmental, of not... Of not taking people because they're poor or rich and, and, and treating them differently. But at this point in history, religion was all about segregation. It was about saying to people who were poor, you're kind of welcome here, but if you're going to come into our building with your dirtiness and your, your filth, then you need to sit over there. And so this was a, quite a statement for James to make. This would have been offensive to Jews, Jewish people to say, because they believed that the church was supposed to be this place of cleanliness. And if a dirty, poor person comes into the church, then they believed that it was probably the holy thing to do to separate them from the holy people, which James just gets so mad about. He hates the idea that the followers of Jesus would be in a place where they segregate people based on how much money they make or based on anything. So he says, listen, my dear brothers... Has not God chosen those who are poor? Which, by the way, that was earth-shattering when Jesus said this. Jesus came and he said, um, 
those of you who are poor in spirit, those who are spiritually poor and you feel like the furthest from God, God is on your side. And the, the world went, what? Because God is never on the side of the spiritually poor. He's never on the side of the poor people. The gods at that time were always on the side of the rich people because they got to make them up. But the real God, James says and Jesus says, he's, he's here for the, the poor. He's here for those who are downtrodden. He says, but, but you, you group of Christians, you have insulted the poor. Now, that James uses a phrase here in the original language that we don't have quite right in English. It's something like, when you insult the poor, you insult God himself. James is saying that God and the poor people are the same thing. And, and I think this is because James was there when Jesus told a story one time. Jesus was standing with a whole group of people, and there was a field full of sheep and goats. This was a really cool thing, because Jesus did most of his teaching outside. And he was with a group of people, and there were sheep and goats in this pasture. And he said, at one point, at some point, God is going to come, and he is going to separate the people who say they follow him. He's going to separate followers of him. And, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the religious people love to segregate, so they're like, yeah, let's, let's separate. Let's separate the good people from the bad people. So the religious people are all going, yeah, what's it going to look like when God separates the good people from the bad people? But Jesus has a whole different understanding of what God considers good and bad. He says, in fact, the good people, the people who believe they're close to God, they're going to be shocked that they're going to be in the category with the goats. (laughs) They're not going to be in with the sheep. They're going to be in with the goats. And they're going to say, God, why why did you separate me this way? Why did you put me with the bad people? My whole life I've been religious. My whole life I've been a prayer in front of people even. You ask anybody, they could tell you I go to church every Sunday. And Jesus says, "But, but God will look and he will say, away from me. I never knew you. You obviously don't have the things at heart that I have at heart. And they'll say, God, why? Why would you separate me this way? And here's what Jesus says. He said, Jesus looks at them and he says, because when I was in jail, you didn't come and visit me. What? Jesus was in jail? He said, further than that, when I was, when I was poor, you didn't feed me. In fact, when I was far from God, when I was without clothes, when I was the person that you went by on a regular basis, you didn't give me clothes. And these people look at Jesus and go, when when were you hungry? When were you in jail? I don't remember that. If Jesus was in jail, I would go see him. You know, if you were in jail, if you needed clothes, I wouldn't walk by you. And Jesus says, here's the thing, guys. When you pass by somebody, who is broken, somebody who is hungry, somebody who is naked, somebody who is in jail, and you don't, pay attention to them. When you don't give them worth, it's like you did it to me because I and them are one. This was huge. And James was there when Jesus told that story. So I think what he is saying here to these people, he's saying, you have lost your spark. You have lost your spark. You believe all of a sudden as a church that your job is to come in and believe in Jesus. Let's get in together, let's sit in pews, and let's just sing songs that we know and say we believe, and then let's just go back to the rest of the world and live however we want. Let's go back and walk past people who, don't, who need clothes. Let's walk past people who need food. Let's, let's, let's scoff as we went, go by the jails and go, well, you got what you deserved. Let's do that, and then let's go in and worship and just pretend that the two things don't matter. And what James says is, Jesus is offended as though you missed the opportunity to help him himself when you do that. This is a big deal. He says, if you really 
keep the royal law found in Scripture. One time, a guy came to Jesus and he said, hey, what's the most important thing in all the Bible? And Jesus said, really one thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he said, and the second one is a tie. <laughs> the first and the second are, are, are together. And he said, the, the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what James is referring to here. The time that Jesus said, the most important thing to God is to love him and love people. So if you really keep that law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you're convicted by law as lawbreakers. See, what happened is these church people would come in and they would say, hey, we go to church every Sunday. Hey, we, we read the Bible. Hey, we have a quiet time. James is saying that's not enough. That just believing, just coming in and singing songs, just being a part of a church is not enough for God. He wants something more. So verse 14, James says something that I believe changed the church. And one time it changed my life entirely. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith in God, but he has no deeds? What good is it for a person to say he believes, but not act on it in any way? This was a huge revelation to people. He says, can such faith save him? In that phrase, the original language is something like, what is his faith worth? Is his faith useful if all he does is believe? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> James is remembering that conversation that Jesus had. And with he's, he's without clothes or food. If one were to say to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is worthless. It's dead. It's useless. And someone will say, James says, you have faith, I have deeds. He says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. James, the brother of Jesus, says faith isn't enough for God. Just believing he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he does is not enough in your life. That there is something else. James says, you just believe, you just want to talk about what you believe, that's not enough. James says, I will prove that I believe by the way that I treat the people around me who aren't like me. By the way I look after people who need food and who need clothes by the downtrodden in life. That's how I prove what I believe. <laughs> James, James makes a whole lot of people mad at this point because it's so easy it's so much easier to be a follower of Jesus if all you have to do is believe or at least pretend you believe. If all you have to do is come to church and, and, and sing some songs and when somebody says, how you doing, you smile real big and pretend that you're doing okay and then you get in your car and you go home and you live however you want. That's easy. And people want easy. James says it's not what God wants. In fact, he even takes it a step further. He says, you believe there's a one God? Do you believe there's a God? Yes. Everybody goes, yes. He goes, good. So do the demons. So does Satan. Did you know the demons believe that there's a God? They believe and they shudder. It's not enough for God. It's not enough to just believe. James says there's a spark plug that God has put into our life. It's a spark plug. And if, if you don't have it in your life today and in your family, your family is missing something and you're missing something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just believing is not all God has asked. He's asked for us to act, to do something. 
right now in the world. Can you imagine what it would be like to be God? And maybe you've never done this, and maybe, maybe there's a good reason for that. But can you imagine just for a second, just for this morning, what would it like to be God? What would it be like if you could see that somewhere in Africa, right now, as we speak, somewhere in Africa, there is a mother worried sick. Not about getting her daughter to ballet practice on time. Not about getting to Sam's Club to get lunch money. Not about beating the Baptist to Cracker Barrel. But a mom worried sick about finding enough clean water for her daughter to live one more day. Right now, God sees that woman, desperately loves that woman and that baby as we speak right now. And as God looks down on us, He also sees a 13 to 15-year-old girl in a shipping container who has been trafficked for her body, starving, scared, and used. And at the same time he sees the woman in Africa, he sees this girl somewhere in the Middle East. And he desperately loves her. And his heart aches for her. And he sees us. And we're in our blue pews in Bloomington. And he is so honored when we raise our hands and worship to him. And he is so in love with you. And he is so concerned with the bills that you have to pay. And he is desperately in love with the brokenness in your life. And he sees what Melissa is going through right now. And it breaks his heart as much as the girl in the shipping container breaks his heart. But he sees them at the same time. And when we raise our hands and we say we believe, and we, and we walk out of here, and we walk by person after person after person who breaks God's heart because of the things going on in their life. And we get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to give the things that He has given us back to them and make a difference in their life. It breaks His heart again. And James says, you want a spark plug? You want a spark for your life? Don't walk out of this building today just believing. Prove it. Have you ever thought about what your faith is worth? James says it's possible to have faith that isn't worth anything. It, you know that, right? How many of you have seen cult specials on, on A&E? I get into the cult specials. These cults that sh- shape up. If you were alive during the Jim Jones era, you know that these people believed. I mean, they believed more than we believe, probably. They believed so sincerely, they were willing to take Kool-Aid laced with, laced with cyanide. Belief is not enough. Action. God says action is what engages us with Him. It's what allows us to feel the rhythm of the universe. God set it apart from the beginning of time for us to do life together and to help each other through it. And when we refuse to, when we come in and say we believe, but we refuse to engage with God, we are missing something that is desperately hurting our families and our life. Faith without action dies. It's dead. If you remember Rich Mullins, Rich Mullins was a a, a worship leader and a songwriter, Christian songwriter that says, faith without works is like a screen door on a submarine. It's not worth anything. I have to give that one a second. Screen door in a submarine is worth nothing. That's what faith is, James says to God. Faith without works is worthless. It's nothing. Faith 
that leads me to do something, to engage with God, is faith proven that it's real. In James chapter 1, before he starts that second chapter, James 1.26 is my favorite piece of scripture because it changed my life. I went to Bible college. I grew up in, in, in church. I went to Bible college with the intent of being a preacher so that I could, I could kind of be a part of one of those happy churches where everybody um, kind of feels better about themselves when they leave. Um, and, and when I got to Bible college and I started reading the Bible, I realized this is not what I want to do with my life. I don't want to be in a church where, where we just talk about ourselves all the time. I don't want to be in a church where it's so religious that it doesn't look any different than the rest of the churches in the world. I want to be in a place that, that is plugged into God. I want to be in a place that's doing something, that actually makes mistakes every now and then because we're giving our money to people. I actually makes mistakes with our programming because we are so aggressive with the way we're going after people who are far from God. And, and I realized I don't want to do this. So I got out of Bible college and I decided I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be this kind of guy. I don't want to be a preacher anymore. I learned how, but I didn't have the passion for it. And so it was years later that I read this piece of Scripture, and it hit me in a whole different way. He says, those who consider themselves religious, that was me. In fact, I would say I'm a religious person now. I think about God all the time. I listen to Christian music sometimes. Um, I come to church regularly. I worship. Um, I would consider myself religious. And he said, if you consider yourself religious and you don't keep a tight ring on your tongue, you deceive yourself. That is, if you talk all the time and you never listen, you're deceiving, you're lying to yourself about what you're actually doing with your life and, and what you're doing with your belief. And he says, and, and by the way, that kind of a lying to yourself is worthless to God. His religion is worthless. Now, verse 27, this is what changed my life. He said, religion that God wants, this is the kind that God wants, by the way, when it comes to religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Good worship services that sing the songs that I want to sing in the right order and does just the things that I want to do so I feel better about myself when I leave. I hope this changes your life like it did mine. What God wants from Northside Christian Church, what He wants from your church attendance, is this. Religion that our God accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the thought of the world that my whole life is about me that everything in life revolves around me even the songs i sing to god revolve around me even the worship services, even the church that I go to ought to look like I want it to look like, ought to feel like I want it to look like. That's what he means by being polluted by the world. The world's thoughts that I'm here for me and I have this consumption assumption that everything that's near me is mine to consume and I'm going to do it until I'm dead. He says, your job as a believer in Jesus Look at this. Look how specific it's to take after orphans and widows. You know why he uses these? Because these are the two groups of people at this time in history who needed the most help. Orphans, there were no orphanages. If you were an orphan, you lived on the street at age three, at age five, at age seven. And you had to make for yourself or die. And most of them died. And if you were a widow, you were written off at a certain age. If your husband didn't have a whole lot of money... And you were a widow, not left with a whole lot of money. Your family and everyone else, just it was just publicly okay for them just to go, good luck. And widows found themselves with orphans 
So there's story after story of orphans and widows coming together, of these wonderful older women who weren't worth anything to the world finding these orphans and dying together in their arms. This is an amazing story in our history. And God said, not on my watch. Not where there's groups of people who are claiming they believe in me and who claim that they love what I love. Not on my watch. God says, real religion is going after the hardest group of people to love. It's the, it's the part that the rest of society doesn't want to love. That's what he wants from this place. It's what he wants from your life. And if you're missing it, you're missing the spark plug to your life and to your family. Man, I, I hope that you have this struggle too. My kids, I love my kids. And when they're in a big room full of kids, I'd say I'd take those two every time. I love them. But right now they're going through something that scares me. And I'm hoping you can amen this thing. But they believe the whole world revolves around them. Right? I, do, please tell me your kids do too, right? And you grandparents, you're not helping with the whole thing, you know? <laughs> my yeah. My son is nine years old. He plays football. He played, um, he played nine games this year in football. He played corner. He never one time tackled a single person, never touched a single football the entire year because he's the littlest guy on the field. And he did a great job, and I love him. But you know what my mom said to him? You're the best football player on the team. He never one time had any impact on any play and any game we had. He wasn't sore. His pants weren't green from stains. He had no impact. And my mom said he's the best on the field. He believes his world is him. And my daughter is a better human being than I am. She's an amazing person. But she's starting to believe that every, every dollar she makes is hers to spend. It's mine. I made it. I worked hard for it. She's starting to believe that every toy, everything she's given is ready for eBay and she gets all the money. She's starting to believe that everything revolves around her. And here's what I know as her dad. This will kill her. This will kill her faith in God. And it will make her a grumpy old lady at some point in her life. So here's what Risha and I have started doing. We've decided there are four words in our house that mean more than anything right now to my kids. And here's what those four words are. It's not about you. Some of you didn't have parents that ever said that, apparently. Some of us never had parents that ever said, life isn't about you. And that's not just a comment on whether or not you're an important person. That is, if you grow up believing it is, you're going to be disappointed, mad, and grumpy your entire life. God wants you to know today, it's not about you. You. Here's the problem. God says that real faith, real religion, is taking care of orphans and widows in their distress. Today, as we speak, there are 500,000 orphans in the United States looking for someone to take care of them. You know who God thinks, whose job it is in God's mind? It's the Jesus followers. Why are there half a million orphans in America right now? You know how many churches there are in America? This just came out this week. We just crossed the million mark. There are a million churches and 500,000 orphans. That's, I'm not a good math person. But I think that's one orphan for every two churches. And the majority of people that are adopting orphans aren't Christians. I think this breaks God's heart. I think it breaks God's heart that right now there are people all over the world who, who don't have 
food, and our kids will have more to open at Christmas than their brains can register. I just read an article that says that, that after about six presents, your child can't register anymore the happiness or the excitement. They have to put it aside. And this year, if, if your family's like mine, our kids will get so many presents that after about six, they'll start to think, hey, bring me another. It's just like eating. It's just part of who I am now. People just give me things. Right? So I'm going to ask you, if you're, if you're a parent this year, Christmas, you've got a lot of time here to make this decision. Would you do something different this year? Would you let your kids know it's not all about them? It can still be a little bit. Here's what we're going to try this year. Never done this. We're going to try it. We're going to give them something new or something they want, something they need, and something to read. And then we're going to take the rest of our money and we're going to give it to this little girl named Frontiana that we met on Compassion International that is their age who will have nothing at Christmas if we don't give something. And we are going to shower her with the rest of my kids' gifts. And we're going to see what it does to our hearts. And we're going to take part in the religion that is acceptable to God. Not just because I want to be a good pastor. Not just because I want to be a good Christian. But because I, want my, I love my kids so much, I want them to grow up with the spark plug for their life. I don't want them to be in their 60s in their 70s, in their 30s, in their 20s, have their arms crossed everywhere they go. People shocked when they find out they're a believer in Jesus because they look just like everyone else because they've missed the spark plug. Today's your chance. Jesus says over and over again that growing faith, this faith that, that we talk about at church all the time, and this faith that James talked about, growing faith is finding those in need around you and proving it on a regular basis. Today, band, you guys can come up or I'll never shut up. Um, today, you're going to go to a restaurant when we're done here, and you're, there's going to be a waitress or a waiter. And in their heart or in their life, there is something more, more important for you to be thinking about than bringing ketchup when she comes back then how much tip she's going to make. What if you were open the way God would be open at that table to have a conversation, to think differently about her? Today you're going to be driving by different places in Bloomington where somebody's standing with a sign. And your thought can be, well, if I give them money, they'll use it for booze, which is what most Christians will say when they drive by them today. Or you can pick up a plastic bag on your way out of here that is full of stuff for them and say, you know what? What you do with this is not between me and you. My job is to prove my faith by acting. I don't know any easier way to do it. There's bags out there. All this stuff is already in the bags. All you have to do is pick it up on your way out and hand it to somebody. It's a good first step. If you're trying to teach your kids life's not about you, pick one up on the way out and find somebody together. It'll change who you are. Today, it's not about you. Today, this is the spark you've been looking for. Today, would you be committed to serving the next person in front of you, the neighbor who maybe you don't really like the way they live their life, so you just don't talk to them, you just don't deal with them, you stay yourself away. Would you be committed today to say, I want to prove my faith. I want to engage with the people that are far from God. Would you do something with your faith?
It changed my life. That's why I'm so excited about it. It's changing my family a little bit at a time. And I believe that it's what will change Bloomington when churches come together and they say it's not about us. It's about engaging in the things that God is doing in this community and proving that we believe. God, we believe. I can't speak for everyone in this room. Some of us are kicking the tires on this whole thing. And if, God, if there are people who aren't really sure what they believe in this room, would you, would you inspire them today by the, your call that, that our job is not just to close our eyes and squint and try to believe more? God, what I've found in my life is as I engage with you, the belief just comes naturally because I see the amazing things you're doing and the brokenness around us. God, you are the healer. You are the fixer of broken things. Would you start with our understanding of religion and what you want from us? Would we not be content with simply believing, but would we act? And would you be honored by it? In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning, this is a good opportunity. If you've never accepted Jesus, you can come do that right now. Most of you have done that. I'm going to give you a chance to pray. Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer. We're starting to fill this stage with people who need prayer. It'll be a great chance for you today to come up and say, God, today I want to act. Would you, would you put opportunities in front of me and my family to move forward by putting action to my faith? Anything else that's going on in your life, this is a good time to pray. Would you sing this song, stand with us, and come up, fill these stairs, and we'll pray together. Stand up, please.
Bye.